0: Keep your Bibles open this morning to Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 13, as we will uh, be in these many verses uh, this morning, saying God's Word together. This is letter number 6, or church number 6, to whom Jesus speaks in the course of Revelation. He began in Revelation 2, speaking first to the church at Ephesus, warning them to Beware of loveless orthodoxy. He spoke to the church in Smyrna, encouraging them, but at the same time telling them to beware of fear, particularly fear of suffering, fear of persecution. Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum, telling them to uh, watch out for uh, those who would seek to deter them from their faith. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus reminds them he knows their love and their faith and their service and their patient endurance, but he tells them to beware tolerance of false teaching. Last week we looked at the fifth of the letters. Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis, telling them to or reminding them that he knows their works, that he knows their reputation, that they are alive, that they have a reputation of being alive, but that they are dead, and warning them that they need to strengthen and remember. The gospel that they had heard at first, lest God or lest Jesus remove them as a representative of his witness there in Sardis. And now this week, Jesus speaks to the church at Philadelphia. There's seven letters to seven churches. Only two of them are entirely positive and never negative. In fact, of the seven churches, five of them have some, something confronted about them by Jesus. Jesus speaks to the church, giving a stern word of, of warning about some particular sin or maybe temptation to sin or some sense in which they've fallen away from, the, uh, from faithfulness to the gospel. The church at Smyrna is the first of the two churches that have anything nice or, or only good things said about them that Jesus spoke to. And he told them just simply persevere in the middle of suffering, in the middle of persecution. I've got you. You're safe. And now here to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus speaks only good things to this church. He knows their works. He knows what's going on in their city. And he only has encouraging words for them. The church in Philadelphia faced a number of different challenges. We'll look at them in just a moment. But we'll find that in a time of persecution, in time, a time when it was difficult to be a Christian, that what the church at Philadelphia struggled with the most was a sense of insecurity, perhaps a sense of, of doubt, self-doubt in, uh, about what they believed about Christ, about who Jesus was, about really what the gospel meant for them. Could they really overcome in this world that was so steadfastly opposed to them? And so to this church at Philadelphia 2,000 years ago, Jesus writes to encourage their perseverance and their faithfulness, even though they have little cultural power, little power in the city, little influence in the city in which they live. And even though they're accosted by unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia, Jesus encourages them with the promise that even in light of all the insecurity that they face, they will be perfectly and permanently identified with their conquering Savior if they, through faith in Jesus, conquer as well. Here's the main idea. Of Jesus to the church at Philadelphia. Beware insecurity. Beware insecurity. And not just like the kind of insecurity that we have, like we're insecure in our own abilities to do certain things, not that kind, but the kind of insecurity that is imposed upon the church from an outside unbelieving world. As we hear Jesus's warning, but also his encouragement, so much more of his encouragement. I would hope this morning that we would come to live gladly And live boldly in Jesus' name, in full security in our identity in Christ. The Church of Philadelphia faced many threats to their sense of self, uh, to to who they were as members of their community, to, to how they would live in a city that was so steadfastly opposed to them. And in the face of insecurity, Jesus says, Know that I have you. Know who you are in my name. As this letter opens, as this word to the church in Philadelphia opens, we read, "Angel to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, this is Jesus speaking, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What do we learn here about Jesus and the Philadelphians in these first Couple of verses. Well, first of all, let's look at the city of Philadelphia. We're not talking about the home of liberty in Pennsylvania, United States, but Philadelphia in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey now. We know what the name of that city, Philadelphia, means. What does Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. The city itself. Philadelphia was located some 20 to 25 miles east of the city of Sardis that we looked at last week. So as Jesus is speaking to the churches, he starts on the western coast of Asia Minor with Ephesus. And then he kind of makes his way northward and east in a sort of horseshoe shape around to these different churches. And now he's, you know, about, well, six-sevenths of the way around that horseshoe. Philadelphia, uh, while the Philadelphia in the United States is a major city, Philadelphia in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago was not a major city. But it did sit at an important juncture to multiple highways that intersected throughout the Roman Empire and one very important highway that went east to the capital, former capital of uh, Persia in uh, a city named Susa. As such, Philadelphia was often called the gateway to the east. It was in close proximity to an active volcano about twenty miles to the northeast of it and, and and Philadelphia itself was a hotbed of seismic activity. There were lots of earthquakes in the city over time in probably the late first century or early second century, maybe not long after the writing and rec- writing and receipt of revelation to the church at Philadelphia, the bishop, the overseer of the church in Antioch, a man by the name of Irenaeus, wrote to the church at Philadelphia. And among the number of issues that he addressed was the influence of Jews who were living in Philadelphia who denied that Jesus was the Messiah and who were making trouble for the Christians that were there, a problem that we'll see in just a moment these Philadelphians indeed faced. That's a little bit about the city and what was faced there, of course, Philadelphia was, like many other Roman cities in that day, full of all kinds of pagan worship and pagan temples, temples to Roman gods. And uh, within that city in Philadelphia, much of the same problem that you was, we would have seen in the other cities, where these trade guilds, where these these sort of uh, workmen's collectives, if you will, uh, had involved or, or been in, um, uh, heavily involved in the worship to these false gods. And in fact, it would have been difficult to be a member of of one of these trade guilds, if you were not worshiping in the temples to the Roman gods as well. In addition to that, as we'll see in a moment, they were facing pressure, not just from pagan Romans, but also pressure from unbelieving Jews. How does Jesus identify himself to the church in Philadelphia? He identifies himself specifically to all of the churches that he writes to, And here he refers to himself or Jesus identifies himself as that risen son of man, the one that's described in Revelation 1 verses 9 through 20. But he uses a less direct reference to his description here. Now, in several of these other letters uh, to other churches, Jesus has used the exact same uh, descriptors of who he is that John used of him in Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Like, for instance, the church at Thyatira. Jesus says, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is a literal reference to how John, just a chapter or so earlier, uh, described Jesus' appearing to him. But here to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is a little more, uh, it's not obscure, but he he slides out on a tangent a little bit while still referring to himself in the way that he was revealed. He says, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. We remember back from chapter 1, verse Uh, uh, 17 and 18, when Jesus says to John, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. These are the keys that Jesus holds, this key of David that he's referring to in chapter 3 as well. But Jesus first says, I'm the holy one, the true one. The holy one, the one who is set apart for a particular purpose. The one who is different, who is higher, who is greater than every other one. I am the true one. There's nothing false in me. He, the thoughts of John 14:6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This reference that Jesus says being the holy one, the true one, is, is not made necessarily specifically in his description in, in Revelation chapter 1, but this description of Jesus as being the holy and the true one is not out of the vein for references to Christ or to God at all. In fact, God is called in Revelation six ten holy and true as he's sung about by angelic beings. One commentator notes that the reference to Christ being the true one can also mean that He is the genuine one. He is the trustworthy one. And so this connection to Jesus being a faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation, is, uh, there seems to be a connection there as well. Of course, Isaiah the prophet who lived some 700 years or so before Jesus was ever born, uses that word holy as a threefold description of God when he has this vision of God in his holy throne room. There are angels all around and they are singing to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus says, I am the holy one. Certainly, if nothing else, John, as he is relaying these words of Jesus, is reminding the church that Jesus is divine, that he is God. He is holy as the Father is. He is true as the Father is. He is God and there is none like him. How else does Jesus identify himself to the church at Philadelphia? He says, I'm the holy one, I'm the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, this is a direct citation of a prophecy or part of uh, the, the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, we read uh, the Lord speaking through his prophet about a man named Eliakim, who is kind of prime minister, if you will, of the kingdom of Israel. He says, I will place on his shoulder, Eliakim, the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. When Jesus uses this descriptor of himself, he is identifying himself as the one who holds the key to the house of David. Eliakim, prime minister of of God's people in the day of Isaiah, had literal keys to open. He had literal access to open the doors to the king, to allow people in to see the king or to keep people out from seeing the king. This servant, Eliakim, came to be understood sort of um, prophetically or typologically in the sense of God's servant, his chosen one that would serve his people. In this sense, Jesus holds the key to the door that gives access to the Father. I have the key of David. I open and no one shuts. I shut and no one opens. The door that is opened or shut on Christ's authority here is not just any door. It's specifically the door to fellowship with the Father. It is the door to salvation. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, I hold the keys to death and Hades. I am the one who has all power, all authority over those things, either to open it and send those there and close them or to shut them forever to those that I have chosen to give access to my Father. Keys are a symbol of authority, a symbol of power, and Jesus holds them. Yeah. This morning, friend, remind yourself or know for the first time that Jesus has, as he, as he identifies himself to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus has all authority and he lacks nothing. Yeah, yeah. This symbol of him is being holy and true and having the key of David is to say, I own it All. I have access to all of it. Friend, know that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He lacks nothing. Now, as pastor of this church, people often ask me, as they're running around the building looking to try to get into a room, Pastor, do you have keys to this room or that room? Do you have a code to this alarm or this door? And the answer most of the time is yes. Friends, I hold a lot of keys. In fact, I hold all the keys. I got keys to locks that I don't even know. I got keys to locks that I I don't even know where the locks are. I have so many keys. I have keys to to classroom doors. I have keys to office doors. I have codes to alarms, codes to front doors to let people in and out. I have codes to safes. I have keys that open boxes that hold more keys to other stuff. If you want to get into a room in this building... You know who to ask? This guy. (laughs) Friends, there are some doors I cannot open. There are some doors I cannot shut. And none of those doors are in this building. All of those doors are, are with relation to access to God. There are some doors that only Jesus can open. And when he opens them, no one can shut them. When Jesus has authority, and only Jesus has authority, to open a door of fellowship to God. To open a door to be known by God the Father. John fourteen six, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because he holds the key of David. Because he's the holy one. He's the true one. That the only way to know God and be known by God in truth and in grace, the only way to be reconciled to God whom you have sinned against by your disobedient rebellion against him, the only way to get to the Father is through Jesus. And good news, the one who has all authority opens a door to salvation for those who come through him. And it's a door that no one in heaven or on earth can shut. So what is Jesus, the all-authoritative one, the one who has all the keys to all the doors and all the locks, what does he say to this poor little church in Philadelphia? He says in verses 8 through 11, Beware insecurity. He doesn't say this directly. He kind of implies it, but beware insecurity. Watch out for those who would cause you to doubt. Now, there are two sources of insecurity that we see. Uh, Jesus uh, revealing to the church. He says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, right? Because he has the keys to do that, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet because they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. There are two sources of insecurity that Jesus reveals to the Philadelphians and through them to us as well. First of all, one source of insecurity is in the knowledge that you are powerless, knowing that you have no ability to affect anything in the world around you. Jesus notes to the church in Philadelphia, I know your works. I know all the things you do. And I know that you have little power. That you're not much of anything in your city. That nobody listens to you. And you have little influence over those who are opposed to the gospel or don't believe the gospel. Or just little influence in your town altogether. I know you have little power. And yet I know that even with the little power you have, you have kept my word and you've not denied my name clear here that the church in Philadelphia is, is not influential in the least in their city. Their number may have been few. In fact, it was probably likely very few. Christianity was not uh, particularly popular or even uh, a broad sweeping sort of faith or worldview until probably the fourth century or so. There were lots of Christians in lots of places, but there, there, there wasn't a strong movement in the world. They still were in the cultural and religious minority. Clearly here in Philadelphia, they're being harassed by non-believing Jews. Jesus calls them out directly. Likely they face the same temptation to give in to pagan worship like Christians in every city did to get along. You go along to get along. You worship at the temples to these Roman gods just so you can keep your job. And yet, these Philadelphians, in, fa- in the face of all of this pressure and all this opposition, have kept Christ's command to worship Him only. And they have endured in the face of this time of trial. And they have not denied Christ for the sake of their livelihood in the city. But all the same, knowing that they are powerless, it is tempted to feel, they are tempted to feel insecure. I would say we probably don't feel this sense of insecurity, at least faith-wise, necessarily in our, our own city, our own culture. Christianity still has a lot of cultural cachet in the West, if we can put it that way. Uh, there's some significance. Uh, that there's some influence that, that we, we can bear and have upon our city. Nevertheless, there may be coming a day and not too far away where Christians will be stripped of their power in the West, of their influence in the West. And certainly it seems that that is uh, increasing an increasing likelihood as days goes by. And people of the secular worldview look on persons of faith with less and less respect and less and less regard and maybe start to be a little more flip, a little more willing to throw out words of castigation for those who would believe in a died and resurrected Savior. Insecurity comes from knowing that you are powerless. But insecurity also comes, as Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia, by being abused by others in power. It's one thing to know you have no power. It's another thing to be abused by those who do have power, by those who do have influence. This was also the case of the Philadelphian church. Jesus speaks against the what he calls a synagogue of Satan. That's a familiar term. We've seen Jesus use that for to speak about non-believing Jews in other cities who intentionally attack Christians who have followed Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Jesus says these are Jews who are not but lie, which is not to say that they're lying about being Jewish, but the lie comes about in saying that we are Jews, we are the people of God, and Jesus is most definitively not our Christ. Jesus says those are the Jews who lie. And these Jews who lie, who are a synagogue of Satan, have been attacking, have been accosting, have been making life very, very difficult for these Christians. Though the Jews had relatively little power in the Roman world, same as Christians did, they had greater social status than Christians would have in that that time. And so if if you're threatened by the Roman government and there's not a whole lot you can do to overthrow them. And you'd really like to have them out of your land or just out of your city. You'd rather have them out of your business, but you can't do anything about it. Oftentimes, we are in situations like that. We will, we will let out, we will deal with the pain of being abused by someone else by abusing someone below us. And that seems to be the case of what these Jews in Philadelphia were doing. Not being able to overcome the Roman government, they turned their sights to the Christians, Say, well, if I can't beat up on the big guy, I'll beat up on the little one. I have no power in the face of Rome, but I do have some influence and I can make life hard. I can get my frustration out on these Christians who who think they're like us. Likely, there were many in the city of Philadelphia who were causing Christians to doubt whether they were truly loved by God by causing them to doubt their faith in Jesus altogether. How can you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Let us walk you back through all of the, the, the scriptures that speak about the Messiah and show you again why Jesus can't be him. Let's tell you again uh, uh, about or try to convince you one more time that he really wasn't raised from the dead. Don't you know? It was just a conspiracy. The disciples, they took him away in the, in the night to go and hide him, to start this movement. Don't believe this, Jesus. You ridiculous, silly Christians. Insecurity comes from knowing you're powerless, and insecurity comes from being abused by others in power who like to remind you of your powerlessness. But the warning about insecurity, to watch out for this kind of insecurity, comes in this, that Insecurity as to who you are in Christ, to feel threatened as to or, or unsure about or or to, or or to doubt about your relationship to Christ or who you are in Christ is a danger to beware. It's a danger to watch out for, because insecurity like this, if we entertain it and allow it to grow in our hearts, will convince you, Christian, that there is no hope and nothing that you can do in the face of adversity for your faith. Insecurity makes you freeze. It causes you to fear. It will stop you dead in your tracks from living boldly for Christ. When you are constantly intimidated by the possible reactions that others will have to your living witness for Jesus, you will likely stop giving persistent witness to Jesus. So watch out. Watch out. In light of the threat of insecurity facing the church, a, a, a threat, insecurity that would stop them from having the, the uh, faithful endurance, the, the faithful testimony in the city that they've been displaying, Jesus gives to the church a promise of security in himself. Watch out for insecurity by remembering the promise of security that I give to you. Jesus gives a promise of security in himself to his church in Philadelphia as he vindicates his people. There is security in Christ as he validates our faith. Jesus says that he will cause those unbelieving Jews who harass the Christians in Philadelphia, he says, I will cause them to bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What does this mean? It's an interesting statement. I will cause these enemies to bow down before you. Well, here are clear references to three places in Isaiah. Isaiah 14, 45, uh, 45, 14. Isaiah 49, 23. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. Each of these places in the prophet Isaiah uh, promised that the nations of the world, those non believing Gentiles of the world, would come and bring gifts and bow down before God's people, Israel, in recognition that their God was the only God. But here now, to the church in Philadelphia, those roles of ethnic Israel and the nations are reversed, aren't they? Those who comprise the true Israel, the the church, which is made up now of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles, these will be approached, Jesus says, in humility by ethnic Jews who previously did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but now, in light of the testimony of the church, do recognize that. Their humiliation here, they're coming and bowing down before the the church of Jesus Christ is not a humiliation imposed by Christ. This is not a picture of Jesus, the one with feet like burnished bronze crushing his enemies underneath his feet. No, this is a picture of self-imposed humility. These Jews who previously did not believe but now see the testimony of the church in the world come to faith in Jesus and in humility say to the church, you were right, Jesus is Messiah. We are coming with all of our worship and all of our praise and all of our faith in him alongside you. This is a picture of Jesus vindicating his people while also saving those who previously were their enemies. What a greater picture of security, right? That Jesus would say to those who are threatened, not only do I have you, Not only do I know your works, not only do I know your heart, not only do I know your faithful endurance and patience and and perseverance in my name in the city, but on top of that, I'm going to use your life, your faith, your witness in the world to make converts out of your worst enemies. Not only do I have you, but I'm bringing them along too to join you. Jesus promises security in him as he vindicates his, his people and also as he preserves his people. Jesus says in verse 10 because you have kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth an hour of trial an hour of tribulation is coming Jesus says that will affect the whole world and those who dwell on the earth now that phrase those who dwell on the earth or or we could say literally earth dwellers is a phrase that's going to come up all throughout the rest of Revelation. And earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, are not human beings that are living on the earth. Earth dwellers are those who dwell in the system of the world. right? So as believers, we are citizens of heaven who live on the earth, but those who dwell on the earth are those who are adamantly opposed to faith in Christ, who are continuing in their rebellion against God. Now, this hour of trial, this hour of tribulation that's coming to try earth dwellers, those who are not uh, by faith united to Jesus, is an hour of trial, an hour of tribulation that has been interpreted differently throughout Christian history. Some have seen it as an imminent trial in the city of Philadelphia 2,000 years ago that would affect that city in particular. There's an hour of trial coming upon Philadelphia. Don't worry, church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I've got you. Others have understood this hour of trial, this short period of tribulation to be pointing to a time of trouble for all believers and all people living in all the world near to the time of Jesus' return. Others still have understood it to be a way of speaking about the kind of trouble that the church of Jesus Christ has been enduring, the difficulty that Christians have have persevered through all around the world in different ways over the last 2,000 years of Christian history. And will do so until Christ returns. Now, it's not my intention to try to tell you exactly which one of these is the perfect view or the exact right one. Good and God fearing believing Christians have understood this text a little bit differently all throughout the ages while all still affirming the same gospel that we do. But after some study uh, over the past week and and last uh, several weeks and months, I think that in this case, Jesus is speaking to a situation that would, in one sense, try the Philadelphians. There would be trouble for this church in Philadelphia in a way that would serve typologically. It would set a pattern for the kind of tribulation, the kind of difficulty that Christians have come in and out of and been born through by the grace of God all throughout the centuries that the church has existed. And a time of tribulation which is likely coming in greater intensity before Christ returns. Now, before we get too far in the weeds there, let's see what Jesus is saying here. Right? He says, an hour of trial is coming, and I will keep you from it. There's a promise of preservation here. Let's not get all wrapped up in the what is the hour of trial means, but let's see what Jesus has promised to his church, that he will preserve them through it. The promise of preservation here is for all Christians. It does not appear to me that Jesus is going to take his church out of the world so that they will not suffer hardship. In fact, uh, Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 15. He says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Rather, it seems that even through hardship and tribulation, even though we face difficulty for being Christians, that Christ is going to shape his people's faith and he is going to keep their souls secure in himself, even in the midst of all that will come. There are lots of ways to be safe in a storm. Let's say you're thrown out of a ship. You're lost in troubling seas. The waves are crashing over you. The wind is blowing hard. Rain is falling. You are at risk of dying, drowning. There are a lot of ways that you can be safe from, in, through that storm. In one sense, you can be saved from that storm. That that a a Coast Guard helicopter could come by, drop a uh, a rescue diver in on a uh, a line, uh, and, and he could grab you up, wrap a life preserver around you, and you could be winched, you could be hoisted up out of the water with that rescue diver and fly away in the safety of that helicopter. You would be saved from the storm. At the same time, that same Coast Guard helicopter could come in and drop a diver in without any line attached to him. And only those things necessary for his survival and the survival of the one who is about to drown. And that Coast Guard diver can wrap you up in his arms, wrap you up in that that life preserver. And he could say, hey, listen, this is going to be tough, but I've got you. We're going to go through some hard stuff. Some waves are going to crash over your head. You're going to feel like you're drowning, but trust me, I've got you. I have everything that we both need for our survival. No harm will befall us. Just hold to me. And I think that's the picture that Jesus is giving to the Philadelphians of his preservation in trial. Not that he's going to snatch us up as as his people. Not that he's going to snatch us up out of difficulty so that we'll never have to endure hard things for his name. In fact, several times throughout Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, we're reminded over and again that if the world hates us, we should not be surprised because it hated Jesus first. And that Jesus intends to use our, the persecution, the difficulty, the hardship we may endure for our own edification and sanctification. That like gold in a furnace is melted down and purified, so will our faith be, uh, result in genuineness and, and beauty before God at the end of trial. I would encourage us, let's not get too wrapped up in the how of being saved from trial or the when, but rather let's get wrapped up, let's get focused on what Christ has promised his people here. Perfect security. There is nothing that can touch the salvation that Jesus gives to those who have trusted him. Absolutely nothing. There is no safer place to be in the hardest time of persecution that you or the church around the world may ever face than in the grip of Christ's grace. Beware insecurity, Jesus says. And as you do, friends, remind yourself. Remind yourself, though trouble may come and insecurity may arise, remind yourself that Jesus has loved you, does love you, and will love you. That there is nothing that can take you out of the grip of his grace. Your friends, there may be nothing more important, no more important word for the one who struggles with insecurity, for the one who, who fears other people than this. There may be nothing more important than this than to know this that Christ has loved you, does love you, and will love you. In the face of insecurity, it's it's all too easy. to feel like Christ has also abandoned us in the face of threat, in the face of persecution, when difficulty comes to think, doesn't Jesus care about me? Doesn't Jesus see me? Doesn't he know what I'm going through? I think about our brothers and sisters and living in hard places in the world today who are literally being arrested and abused and tortured and killed for their faith. And I can't help but think that they at times wonder, Jesus, don't you see me? And the promise of Christ is, from Revelation chapter 3, absolutely I do. And though this world may kill you, nothing can touch your soul because I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you with love inexpressible. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Though the storm may prevail over you, I've got you safe through it. Friend, when faced with the temptation to be insecure about what you've come to know about God, what you've come to know about Christ, turn again your eyes to this promise that Jesus has loved you, that he does love you, and that he will love you. Now, for those who conquer in the church in Philadelphia, those who overcome the threat to to fall to insecurity in their faith, Jesus promises to those who overcome a certain home. A certain home, a secure home for those who conquer, for those who overcome. Verses 12 and 13 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to those who conquer insecurity by holding fast to their identity, holding fast to their refuge in Christ, Jesus himself promises a certain secure eternal home and he promises it in four different ways. First of all, he says he will make the conqueror a pillar in the temple of my God. This is a beautiful symbol of being in a place of honor among the people of God. Just as Peter calls the church the living temple of God in 1 Peter chapter 2, and as the psalmist looks on the hope of dwelling in the house of God forever in Psalm 23, so Jesus promises a place of honor among God's people for those who persevere, for those who conquer. I will give them a place of honor in my my Father's house, and never will they leave from it. Second, he promises to write on them the name of God. Now this promise, I will write on them the name of my God, foreshadows the reality of Revelation 14:1 and Revelation 22, 4, that those who belong to the Lamb, who is Christ, will be sealed with the name of God on their foreheads. Now this identifying mark is a symbolic one. It's not a literal one. God, Jesus isn't going to tattoo God's name on our foreheads. But following the command of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8 to the people of Israel to bind the law of God between their eyes, which again is a figure of speech that communicates the identification of the individual, someone who obeys with all his mind the precepts of God. So this promise to write the name of God on the foreheads of those who belong to him is to say that those who belong to the lamb are recognized by God as belonging to him and sealed with his own name. I was uh, at our kids' school a couple of days ago for a parent-teacher conference for one of our daughters. And I was walking down the hall to the classroom. There were no kids in the hallway. But I think the school staff, knowing that lots of parents would be there that week to uh, meet with teachers and stuff, they, they unleashed the lost and found. And the, and the lost and found... But well, took up the whole main hallway of the school and there's just like jackets and t-shirts and pants and sweaters and backpacks and lunch boxes and water bottles, all the things that kids could lose laying in the hallway. And I was going, this is interesting. I wonder if there's anything that's nice here that would fit me or our kids. <laughs> Do you know why all those things are lost and not found? Because none of them have names written on them. Some of you parents are wise parents and you take a sharpie and you write your last name on the tag of your kid's clothes. And your kids hate it. It's like, Mom, it's not cool. But it's so I won't get lost. So that that if somebody picks it up, they see the name bomb written on it. And they know at least the family that this belongs to. So, in the same way, Jesus says, I will write the name of my God on their foreheads. They will be known by those who see them as belonging to the Father. He'll also write on them. That's fun. The name of the city of God. So three now identifications with uh, the, the, uh, a certain home for those who overcome. A pillar in the temple of God, the name of God on their heads, and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So not only where where they will be, not only who they belong to, but where they will live and what, what, what nation, what kingdom they are citizens of. This new Jerusalem, this promise here to write the name of the new Jerusalem on them is a, a promise that foreshadows the coming new Jerusalem, which is the dwelling place of God with man here in these cosmos made new. The new inter, new Jerusalem is, is revealed, it's introduced to us in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. we got several weeks before we get there. Hold on. But there we read in Revelation 21 that this new Jerusalem is a perfect city in every regard. It symbolizes a a return to and even a surpassing of the the Edenic state uh, where Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony and fellowship with God. The new Jerusalem is like Eden, but even better. When Christ consummates his kingdom in the resurrection, he will make us to live in the new Jerusalem. And this new city is also prophesied in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 48, verse 35. And there in Ezekiel 48... The name of the city that God brings is called, the name of the city is the Lord is there. It's where God dwells. To have the name of that city written on yourself, written on your heart, is to identify you as a bona fide citizen of that city. So Jesus says, to those who overcome, I will give a certain home. You'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. I'll write the name of my God on you. I'll write the name of the city of my God on you. The new Jerusalem, the one that's coming out of heaven. You will be a citizen of that place forever. And I'll give you my own new name. I'll write my own new name on you. As in Revelation 2, verse 17, this promise foreshadows Revelation 19, verses 12 and 13. Where there we read, About Jesus, his eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So whether the name of Jesus, this new name that he writes on those who belong to him, whether the name that no one knows but himself is King of Kings or Lord of Lords or the Word of God is not perfectly clear to us in Revelation, but it probably has, has some sort of relation to all of these, as well as to the uh, difficult or unpronounceable name of the Lord in Hebrew, maybe something like Yahweh, we're not sure exactly how it's pronounced. But the point of having... The name of Jesus, the new name written on the individual who overcomes, the one that belongs to Jesus, is the same as the previous promises. It identifies without question that the redeemed individual belongs to the Lamb, belongs to Christ, and can never, never, never be removed from His care or salvation. There are lots of threats to insecure, Lots of threats. In this world that may cause us to be insecure about our faith in Christ. About our trust in him. About whether he can be faithful to his promises. Jesus recognizes a church in Philadelphia that faced those fears. And he gives to those who fear insecurity. A promise of a certain home. If they endure with patient endurance and faithfulness to him. And in light of that promise this morning dear Christian. I exhort you fight insecurity. By reminding yourself of what you are in Christ, fight insecurity. Wage war against doubt by reminding yourself of what and who you are in Christ. Who are you in Christ? What are you in Christ? Let me review a few things that Scripture says about us. In Christ, we are loved, in Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, you are accepted. In Christ, you are adopted. In Christ, you are saved. In Christ, you are alive. In Christ, you are a branch of the true vine. In Christ, you are a child of the one true God. In Christ, you are redeemed and rescued from the sin that was killing your soul. In Christ, you are adored by God. In Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a servant of righteousness. In Christ, you are ambassadors for the King of Kings. In Christ, you are a sheep cared for by the good shepherd. In Christ, you are a living stone and a pillar in God's living temple of worship. In Christ, you belong to God. In Christ, you are a citizen of the new Jerusalem. In Christ, dear friend, you are Christ's. And nothing in heaven or on earth can change that ever. Christian, as long as you follow Jesus... You will not be in the center of power in a world system that puts self and self-expression and material wealth and personal influence on a pedestal to be admired. You will often find yourselves as those who have but little power. In fact, you will likely find yourself regularly accosted, attacked, insulted by those who would seek to make themselves greater by demeaning you. Being powerless and despised by others is likely to cause you to wonder, who am I? (laughs) What's the point of all this? Where can I go for assurance? Why does any of this matter? Why do I keep following Jesus? This precious word from Jesus, the risen son of man to his church says, though you are powerless, I am all powerful. Though others belittle you, you are beloved by me. And though everyone deny and betray you in this life, you are inextricably and undeniably mine. Dear child, I've got you. Press on. The question remains, what if I don't have Jesus? Who who am I without Christ? The answer is the opposite of all the other things that we said before. Without Christ, you are lost, dear friend. Without Christ, you have no security of an eternal home. Without Christ, you are outside of a right relationship with God who made you. Without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, there is no real joy. Without Christ, there is no real purpose. But dear friends, if you are outside of Christ, know that there is hope for you. There's hope for you to be in Christ. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to make yourself anything to be in Christ other than humble before the King of Kings. Recognizing that you and your sin have separated yourself from God and that in your desire to be known by God and for all of the spiritual, soul-satisfying security that He can give, you turn yourself over to the control of Jesus who died to pay the penalty for your sins and who was raised from the dead to give you the hope of eternal life and security in Him. Friend, you can have security in Christ today if only you trust Him. Will you? Will you? Let's pray together.